reading this morning the celebrated prologue of the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, the first 18 verses of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these immortal words that begin the great gospel of the Apostle John. How many times have they been read at Christmas time to the encouragement and the joy and the pleasure of your people? And how many times in the course of history have those words been read by someone who is seeking you and in those words found you and the Lord Jesus Christ as his or her Savior. We love the sound of this paragraph. We love its ring. But we want, O God, still more to love its meaning, the content of John's affirmation here. Help us to that end, O God, that we may appreciate more deeply, love more greatly the Lord Jesus Christ who came to earth for us. We pray it for his sake. Amen. The word highfalutin, spelled H-I-F, is apparently short for highfalutin, spelled H-I-G-H. No one knows for sure its origin. Falutin, it is thought, may come from fluting. That is, the playing of the flute. In this case, playing high notes on the flute. Or falutin may have been a grandiose equivalent of flying, in which, the, in which case highfalutin would be a slang term for high-flying. Even the inestimable OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, isn't sure. But whatever its etymology, everyone 
is agreed that highfalutin is a pejorative term. It refers to something or someone that is pretentious, pompous. It's a great word, isn't it? But what does it have to do with Christmas? Well, I certainly don't want to make you pompous or pretentious, but I do very much want you to know some things that might very well make you seem pretentious to other people, even to other Christians, at least if you talk about them. Such knowledge shouldn't be thought to be highfalutin, but alas, nowadays, it's likely to be. The superficiality or mediocrity of the thinking of the typical American Christian is, alas, one of its distinctive or defining features. Christians as a class do not think deeply about their faith nowadays, at least do not as they once did. They don't know their Bibles very well. Indeed, virtually every survey has demonstrated that Christians today don't know their Bibles as well as unbelievers knew their Bibles several generations ago. And they know even less theology, that careful, painstaking thinking about biblical teaching that the church's great teachers over the past two millennia have bequeathed to Christendom. Though we might naturally suppose that there are few things more endlessly fascinating than theology, the knowledge of the living God and his works, and few things more practically important to know for the children of God, Christians today as a class are not theologically minded. Indeed, they are less theologically minded than virtually any preceding generation of Protestant believers. It was not always this way, as I said, and you and I ought to be among those who are attempting to change the situation to make it more like it was when ordinary Christians like you and I were both deeply interested in and thoughtful about the doctrines of their faith. A great many Christian men today, Christian men, know more about their fantasy football players than they do about the doctrines of their own faith. Now, don't take this as simply another harangue. The lack of theological depth has, as it must, led to a lack of spiritual depth, to shallowness in life as well as in thought. And no one contests that fact. The world knows it. And the observers of the church from within the church know it as well. Everyone knows that American Christianity is worldly and that the marginalization of Christian faith in American culture is an index of its worldliness. A compromised faith will never produce a robust and impressive and influential Christian presence in a society. And a compromised faith always begins with a faith that is superficially understood and has not been made the true fascination of the mind. And I'm not thinking about others in this respect. You and I have been influenced more than we know by the spirit of our age. It was the Greek philosopher Socrates in the 5th century, if you remember, who said that an unexamined life is hardly worth living. We might say that an unexamined faith is hardly worth believing. According to Cicero, 
Socrates was the first to call philosophy down from the sky and to establish her in the towns, in the families, and to force her to investigate the life of ordinary men and women. I don't know so much about Athens in the 5th century B.C. or Socrates, but I do know that in the past, the effect of the Christian faith upon her loyal subjects has been to make even the simplest men and women deep thinkers about God and man, about life and salvation, about the mysteries of existence. And at Christmas, the evidence for the lack of Christian hard thinking is all around us all the time. I happened to be listening to the Hallelujah Chorus on the car radio the other day, and when it was over, the DJ came on to say that they had more of Santa's songs to play right after the commercial break. This explains to some degree more, I think, than any of us wishes to admit why no one pays much attention to the Christian faith in our time in the West. Our faith is fabulous, a wondrous knowledge, but it has been domesticated and reduced to much less than it really is. It no longer fascinates because it no longer entrances the mind, or at least it doesn't seem to. If the Almighty and His works do not amaze and astound and startle, if They do not bewilder the mind if they don't provoke wonder and bafflement and even offense and outrage. Then why should anyone take our message seriously or imagine that it concerns the greatest conceivable things and a God who is impossibly glorious and wonderful? If Christians' view of God is akin to the culture's view of Santa Claus, and if Christmas for Christians is little more than the charming family holiday that the world takes it to be, we have no one to blame but ourselves for our loss of status and influence in our society. We're not presenting our culture with a message that compels their attention. It hardly seems to compel our own attention. So this Christmas morning, let's engage in that time honored custom of thinking hard for a short while about the Christmas message that lies at the heart and at the foundation of our faith, a beautiful summary of which John has given us in the immortal language of the prologue of his gospel. The Word was with God and was God. The Son is not the Father, but He is as much God as the Father. He is so much God and so completely and truly God that He was and is the creator of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is biblical language about Jesus Christ. All things that have ever been, including you and me and every other human being, are the doing of Jesus the second person of the triune God, who at a point in time in the middle of history became flesh and dwelt among men. That is, he became a man, a human being, and lived in the world the life of a true human being, like all other men, apart from sin. 
He didn't appear to become flesh or seem to become flesh. He became flesh. He who had not been a man was now a man. And then John adds at the end, after everything else, no one can see God. Jesus is God, and people saw him, but no one can see God. The astounding thing that John so simply and beautifully reports here became the source of unending reflection, controversy, and argument in the early centuries of the Christian history. And it has been controversial ever since. Godly men, deeply spiritual men, learned men, struggled to find a way to express the truth that had been taught them in the Word of God, truth that was expressed by all Christians when they came on the Lord's Day to worship and when they knelt in order to say prayers. But our fathers in the faith were certain that there could be no sure believing without first thinking and thinking hard about what it was that was to be believed and without reaching a right understanding, however limited that understanding may be, in the face of such mysteries. So many questions rise to the surface as soon as one begins to think about the word becoming flesh, about what happened, about what that means. In the late 4th century, had you walked through the marketplace in Constantinople, you would have overheard one argument after another between shopkeepers and customers between slaves and masters, between men and women, concerning the right way to think about and the right way to express the fact of the Incarnation. When was the last time at the Tacoma Mall you found yourself listening in to two shoppers discuss the Incarnation of the Son of God? Perhaps you remember the settlement of this doctrinal controversy first proposed by the council at Chalcedon in the year 451 and accepted by all Orthodox Christianity ever since. When the scriptures teach us that God became flesh and dwelt among us, when other scriptures teach us that Jesus lived as a human being among us, that he was beset with all the limitations of human life except for sin, that is, He was weak in all of the ways you and I are weak. Experienced life in all of the ways we experience it. He grew tired. He got sick. He felt the pain of both body and soul. There was so much more that he did not know than that he knew. When the scripture teaches us that he had to learn everything the way we have to learn it, That he suffered and grew as a person through his experience of pain and disappointment and frustration and sorrow. That he could be killed and was killed. I say, when the entirety of biblical teaching about Jesus is taken together, the Council of Chalcedon tells us we are left having to say of Jesus Christ that he must be acknowledged in two natures. That is a divine nature and a human nature. 
And of those natures, the two, we must say that they are in him, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. The four most important adverbs in Christian theology. The distinction of natures, the council went on to say, being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in the one person. To be sure, that's not an explanation of anything. It is rather a confession of the truth as it has been revealed about Jesus Christ in the most careful, chaste language the church could conceive of. No one claimed to understand any of this. They only wanted to confess it. It was a statement at the time designed to repudiate two distinct errors in thinking about the Lord Jesus, errors so inevitable that they continue to be committed today. One was that his divine and human natures were merged into one. The other was that he is in fact two persons, one human and one divine. No, according to Chalcedon and every major statement of Christology since, including that of our Westminster standards, the Bible teaches us to believe that in the incarnation, God the Son took to himself, to his person, a true and authentic human nature, so that he was then and is now one person with two natures. Do you have any idea how stupendous, how ineffable, utterly mysterious that is to say? Other people certainly realize how preposterous John's prologue seems to be, how absurd, how offensive. Early critics of the Christian faith latched on to the claim that the Son of God was incarnate in Jesus Christ. They realized how central it was to the Christian message and the Christian faith, and they ridiculed it. Here is Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher who wrote a book about Christianity entitled True Doctrine. What is the purpose of such a descent on the part of God? Was it in order to learn what was going on among men? Doesn't God know everything already? And do you remember reading? Perhaps some of you in some years past have actually seen the words that encircle the dome in the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, one of Islam's most sacred sanctuaries. Far be it from God that he should have a son. The incarnation assumes the triune nature of God, the triple personality of the one living and true God, which is itself an affront to reason and to monotheism in many religious minds, and then compounds that terrible error by adding the assertion that one person of the high majesty became or even could have become a lowly human being, having 
walked about the earth getting his feet dirty, eating food and going to the bathroom, chatting with friends, getting sick and then well again, growing up from childhood like anybody else. Blasphemy. Or ridiculous. But isn't that what John has told us? And isn't it what the rest of the gospel writers and the rest of the New Testament confirm? Have you carefully considered why other people, even religious people, find our central affirmation about Jesus Christ so outrageous? Perhaps we haven't considered it because we have taken a good bit of the outrageous, the phenomenal, out of our own understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's consider this. God cannot cease to be God. If he can, he is not God. Surely we all accept that. The infinite, unchangeable God cannot cease to be what he is. The perfection and eternity of his being is what makes him God in the first place. So if God the Son became a man, what became of God the Son? Or as the devout Anglican Archbishop William Temple put the question in the earlier years of the 20th century, what was happening to the rest of the universe during the period of our Lord's life? Was the world set free from the control of its creator? Did God the Son take a holiday from his duties as the maker and ruler of heaven and earth? When God the Son became flesh and walked among men, what happened to his divine nature? The theologians of the church answered that question in the first place with a Latin adage, Fiditum non capax infinity. The finite is incapable of the infinite. It cannot grasp it. It cannot receive it. There was, in other words, no possible way in which the divine Christ could be comprehended in or limited to his human nature, the human nature of Jesus of Nazareth. This is sometimes also described as the extra Calvinisticum because it was a point of emphasis for the Reformed in their teaching about Jesus Christ in the years after the Protestant Reformation. <coughs> the extra or outside, refers to the fact that God the Son was never contained within his human nature. And therefore, even in the Incarnation, has to be conceived as being beyond or outside of the human nature, the human life of Jesus of Nazareth. So when Jesus was sitting tired by the well in Samaria or in animated conversation with guests at the wedding at Cana, or weeping over the death of the widow of Cana's son, or urging the rich young ruler to follow him, he remained the living God. The entire universe was immediately present to him. He held infinite power in his hand. Every molecule in this vast universe that God has made, was under his active control. But wait a minute. There is but one person. We don't read in the Gospels of two Christs, one divine 
one human. There's no evidence of a dual personality in the Lord Jesus. No, you and I within the inner life of our Savior. He never uses the plural in speaking of himself as if there were two of him and not one. The Bible refers to two natures. It refers to Jesus in ways that are appropriate only for a human being and in ways that are appropriate only for one who is God. But it never refers to him as if he were two and not one. There is but one Son of God, one Jesus Christ, who is represented in the Bible as being at one and the same time eternal God and true and mortal man. Theologians attempt to describe this mystery, not explain it, but describe it, by saying that the human nature of Jesus was impersonal or sometimes impersonal. That is, it was a nature that was added to the eternal person of the Son. There was never a second human person, only a human nature added to an already existing divine person. The Greek word for what we call a person was hypostasis. So Christ's human nature was described as an hypostasis, non-personal, or en hypostasis, in-personal. That is, either without a person or impersonal in the sense that it had its personality in the person of another. The person of the Son of God is eternal, but at a point in time it added to itself, or he added to himself a second nature, a fully human nature. The Son of God took upon himself the form of a servant. He did not take a servant to himself. Jesus was certainly an individual. He wasn't Peter. He wasn't John. He wasn't Paul. He had his own personality and appearance. People could remember the sound, the distinctive sound of his voice. He had all the individual characteristics that we associate with a particular individual human being. He was unique in the, way, the ways that all human beings are unique. But he was also unique in the extraordinary life he lived that no one had ever lived before him or has ever lived since or ever shall. But his human nature never existed independently. Do you understand what I am saying? Because I don't. And you don't either. When God became a man, he didn't become a person for the first time. He had always been a person, but now he was a person who was both God and man. We're piling mystery upon mystery here. And with each step in our description, the description transcends our understanding still further. How did Jesus not know things if he were omniscient God? Why did he have to walk over to the fig tree to find out if there were any fruit on it? Why did he have to ask who it was who touched him? Why did he not know when he was to return to earth? Omniscience can't learn. Omnipotence is never tired. Omnipresence doesn't have to walk from one place to another. And yet we find these opposites confessed of the one and same Jesus Christ. We also find two wills 
in the Lord. Two powers of decision-making. The will by which he made decisions as God and the will by which he made decisions as man. You perhaps remember that the monothelite view, one will view of Jesus Christ, was declared a heresy in the fourth century. He made his decisions as a man, as men have to make decisions with what knowledge one has for reasons that are sufficient to a righteous mind. His decisions as a man were, as it were, unencumbered and independent of his divine will. He decided in Gethsemane to go forward to the cross because as a righteous man he knew it was the right thing to do. Because he knew it was the will of his heavenly Father and because he knew the salvation of his people depended upon it. But he made that decision as a man in the fear and uncertainty of any man who was facing a cruel and unjust death. How was his omniscience kept separate from his ignorance in his single person? He was, as we would say today, an individual. In his individual life, he was both God the Son and the Son of Mary, divine and human, but never a mixture of the two. How within his individuality was his divine will kept from overwhelming his human will so that in the matter of making decisions, he was not truly a man like you and me, was not really tempted in the same way we are tempted. We have no idea how these things were kept separate. Omniscience and ignorance in the same person. The Bible never reflects, it never explores, it never opens a window on the inner psychology of the Son of God whose divine nature and human nature were never mingled or confused, even as they were never separated in the single person. As I said at the beginning, most Christians today have not been trained to think and think deeply about these things. Such biblical assertions lie unexamined in the foundation of our faith and hope. We assume that all is relatively obvious, and we take our Savior's person Largely for granted. Indeed, I think most Christians today are soft heretics, but they don't know it. They are what Christian theology calls Eutychians. Eutyches was a 4th and 5th century churchman who taught that in the incarnation of the Lord, two natures were mingled to create a third nature composed of elements both divine and human. That obviously is much easier to understand. We can make sense of that. Christ's nature was a third thing, neither precisely divine nor precisely human, though the divine certainly had the primary share, the humanity being merged with the divine, as it was said in those long ago days, as a drop of honey mingled in the great ocean. We can get our minds around this, the Greek and the Romans, had their idea of man-like gods. And we have our our ideas today of supermen and superheroes, human beings with divine power and characteristics. And that's the way most of us learn to think about Jesus, however unwittingly. 
as much more God than man, and as a mixture of the two, not both equally God and man, and separately God and man at one and the same time in his single person. That's why most of us really struggle to take the Lord's humanity as seriously as the Bible teaches us to do so. Or to believe that he really was tempted in the same way we are tempted. So much of every temptation in our experience is our lack of knowledge. If we knew ahead of time the trouble our sin would cause, if we could see ahead of time having ourselves to answer for that sin on the great day, if we could know ahead of time when and how the trial through which we are passing would end, if we could see ourselves happy in heaven because at that moment we had made a decision that was honoring to the Lord, why, everything would be so much easier. And we imagine that such must have been the case with Jesus because, after all, He's God. He knows everything. But it was not the case with Jesus. The incarnation is so much more mysterious and so much more wonderful than we often think. The Lord's achievement was so much more stupendous because His righteousness was the righteousness of a man with all the limitations of humanity. He loved His heavenly Father and served Him. He resisted the devil and defeated him. He obeyed the law of God in every instance with no other resources than those that are available to you and to me. True enough, he was not sinful as we are, but then Adam wasn't sinful either. And the first temptation he faced completely undid him. And Jesus had to face temptations for those 30-some years without once failing to do the right thing. He died the death of a man. God can't die. And it was that man's death, not God's. It was that man's death in every way, the death of a human being, that secured our entrance into everlasting life. Martin Luther is said once to have sat for an hour pondering the Lord's creed on the heart on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He finally gave up defeated. God, forsaken by God, who can understand this, he said. Well, Christmas presents us with perhaps greater mysteries, deeper depths, higher heights than even Good Friday and Easter. The true man, the living God in a single person, Neither the Godhead absorbing or overwhelming the manhood with all of its limitations, nor the manhood in any way diminishing the divine infinity, power, and knowledge. We live in an age that indulges the conceit that the mysterious is only that which is temporarily unknown, something that will be soon enough figured out and explained. We tend, as a people, to recoil from that which we cannot understand, we're always tempted to domesticate the truth, to make it less strange, less aliens, less fearful to us, more under our control. 
But there is too much truth that is simply beyond us. We are tiny specks in the immensity of God's creation. We have but the smallest and vaguest idea of the majesty on high. Our mind can comprehend so little of who God is and what God has done. The proper state of mind for a Christian is wonder, bewilderment, amazement, even as we rejoice in the knowledge of God and His salvation that has been given to us. How little even of that wonderful truth do we really know or understand? Christ is our Savior, we know that. But when it comes to explaining just who and what this Savior is, we're left having to hold our hands over our mouths and confess ourselves utterly incapable of grasping even the beginning of the greatness of his life. Have you ever been struck dumb by something? Something so great, so wonderful, so beautiful, that you were literally overwhelmed, silenced by what you felt and what you saw. I can think of experiences in my life when something like that happened. A newly minted college graduate I entered for the first time the cathedral at Chartres and felt in my soul the power and the exquisite beauty of that indescribably great sanctuary. A few hours when I was a young man, literally overcome by the love of God, just a few experiences like that in my life and perhaps as well in yours. We have the capacity as human beings to be awestruck, to be struck dumb by something so great, so marvelous. It is, when you think about it, an amazing power and capacity that human beings have. Evolution didn't give it to us. Why should it be given to us to be overwhelmed, silenced by something so much greater than ourselves? Because there is in this universe something so grand, so impossibly high and deep, so far beyond our grasp and our understanding, and yet so important that we should feel its mystery and its wonder. And so it was our Creator's gift that we should be able to appreciate, to know, to feel at least something of the greatness of these things. It is, in a way, our highest privilege as human beings to enter in to the glory of God and His works and to feel that glory in our hearts. Christmas is one such high mystery before which we should stand stunned, amazed, thrilled, cast down, lifted up. Only God could do such a thing. Only our God would do it for us. Become flesh and live among us as one of us while never once becoming anything less than he had always been and always shall be. Christmas is fun. It's beautiful. A time for family and feasting and happy celebration. But Christmas is also stunning and amazing and mysterious, breathtaking, bewildering. 
And is it true? And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me? No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Amen.